Well, welcome again, everyone. Today's exciting because we're going to start a new series in the book of James. So let's have God's Word open us up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We'll read verse 1, as well as 5 through 8, and then we'll do a quick jump to James chapter 3, 13 to 18. But begin with me at James chapter 1, and please rise for the reading of God's Word. James 1, verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 5 through 8. This is the holy word of our Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Jump with me now to chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your seats and join us once more as we sing and pray together. Uh, Today, we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Living Faith, and in this series, we're going to explore what it means for the Christian to authentically live out his or her faith in real tangible and practical ways. In essence, we are going to be asking the question simply, what does it mean to be a Christian? And And to that end, we will be studying the book of James. 
Now, why James? Well, two main reasons. Uh, first, James, his primary concern, his, his main concern in this letter is genuine faith. Uh, a little background information. Uh, James, he is writing about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so James is likely the earliest written work in the New Testament. And James is writing to the first generation of Christians who have now been in the faith for about 15 years. Now, what happens when you believe in something or do anything for over 10 years? Well, sinful tendencies start kicking in. You start to get lazy or you start to traditionalize things. Superficiality seeps in. Hypocrisy enters. We start making up our own rules and our own levels of positions, and we grow further and further away from the essence of what we believed. And this is what's going on in the early church, 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Superficiality is kicking in. There's hypocrisy going on. People are traditionalizing things. They're making up their own rules and level of positions. There are people who are higher, lower, better, smarter, wiser, people who are foolish. They're creating these classes. And religion has just become, Christianity has just become a religion. And so James, once again, by writing the earliest work in the New Testament, he's urging Christians towards an active and living faith one that isn't contaminated by superficiality and hypocrisy. So that's why we're looking at James, the primary reason. The second reason we're going to look at James is because of his style of writing. I'm not sure if you've ever read this letter, but James is extremely direct. He's straight to the point. He's brazen. He's, he unabashedly calls out anything that's fake. He has a, uh, a nose for uh, anything that is nonsense, and he smells it, and he calls it out right away. You know, by contrast, Paul, if he wants to say something, he'll build it up with all of this theology, all of this doctrine. He'll build it all up. He'll give the foundation, right? Think about Romans. He takes 11 chapters to say what he wants in chapter 12, but not James. He gets to it immediately. He wastes no time. Uh, look with me in James one twenty six. This is um, what he says. Um, he says this. This is one of, uh, another one of the, uh, James's uh, well-known direct statements. If anyone thinks he's religious, so if anyone thinks you know, that he or she is a believer, if you believe in Christ but you can't control your tongue, you can't bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart, and your faith is worthless. I mean, that, that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty direct, isn't it? Right? If you have a hard time controlling your tongue, if you're slanderous or if you praise God with your tongue once and then curse your brother who's made in God's image, then your religion, your faith is absolutely worthless. I mean, he's, he's quite direct, isn't he? And some consider James to be too overbearing, um, you know, in his letter, James only mentions Jesus twice, and that's in passing. 
James doesn't actually mention the cross. He doesn't mention resurrection at all. If James was taking a preaching course in an American seminary today, he would actually fail. The remarks would be too repetitive, uh, it's it's not logical, not Christ-centered. Repeat the course. James would actually fail a preaching course today. But I think James is exactly what we need to hear today. Because today we live in a world where I think there's so much window dressing around any information that we're given. Everything's, everything seems so agenda-driven, hyper-partisan. There's so much fluff and very little substance in the information that we get today. And James seems to cut through all of the noise. He cuts through all of the tradition. He get, cuts through all of the nonsense, and he gives it to us straight. And so for the next few months, we will sit under James's preaching, and it will teach us, it will rebuke us, it will correct us, and it will train us in righteousness. Now, to start this series, I want to look at the subject of wisdom. Uh, James is considered to be the Proverbs of the New Testament, and so naturally, wisdom is a central theme. And there are four questions that I want to ask this morning. The first is, what is wisdom? Uh, The second, what are the marks of wisdom? Third, what are the marks of counterfeit wisdom, as James talks about? And finally, how can we become wise? So first, what is wisdom? Look with me in James 3.13. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, in this verse, James begins by correlating wisdom with good conduct. Wisdom with action. In other words, for James, wisdom is pragmatic. It's seen through action or expressed through works. You know, what prompts James to actually talk about wisdom in chapter 3 is, uh, this, is the tongue, speech, once again. Uh, James starts addressing wisdom due to the flippant manner in which Christians are using their tongue. At the start of chapter 3, James notes how the people's speech are filled with unrighteousness, slander, curses. And for James, the reason why these people are speaking in this way is not due to a lack of knowledge. It's not because they are unlearned people, but it's because of a lack of wisdom, a lack of godliness. And so James begins to touch upon this topic of wisdom as a practical measure by which Christians can live out his or her faith, especially as it relates to our words. You see, for James, wisdom is something that is deeply practical. It changes, affects how we use our tongue. We find this idea of pragmatic wisdom, not just in James, but throughout the entire Bible, wisdom is described as practical righteousness in everyday living. Look with me at James 1.5. It says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. If you read the preceding verses, the manner or the context in which James is calling the church to ask for wisdom is the context of suffering. And so James is saying, when met with the difficulties of life, James is saying, what we need is wisdom. 
Wisdom not so that we can theorize about suffering or talk about it or write an essay about suffering, but wisdom so that we can make the right choices and respond with faith in the midst of suffering. Have you ever seen someone respond with immense faith in the midst of suffering? I had a friend a few years ago who had lost her two-year-old daughter in a tragic, tragic accident. And while she mourned for her daughter for an extended time, she emerged out of it and responded with otherworldly faith. At first, I thought her response was coming from strength, from courage. But as I spent more time with her and observed her more and more, especially in social settings, I saw that she was genuinely cheerful interacting with others. That even when others asked insensitive questions or made insensitive comments, she responded with a smile on her face, not holding grudges or responding snarkily. I seen her on one occasion hold another person's baby girl. And I looked intensely at her face and there was no sign of regret or sorrow but just genuine joy for that child and for that parent. Yet I observed her in moments of prayer, and in moments of deep prayer, she would still weep sorrowfully. You know, when I saw this friend and how she responded in the midst of severe, severe trials and temptations, when I saw how she interacted with people, how she communicated with people, when I saw how she prayed, I realized it was more than strength that she had. It was more than courage. What she had was wisdom. When people made insensitive comments, the way in which she responded, winsomely, lovingly, when people made comments, the way in which she wasn't offended by it, but understood and cared and tried to respond in a manner that would deflect the mistake or the offense of that person. There was wisdom. She knew how to live every day before the face of God, even in the midst of indescribable suffering. See, this is an important distinction when we talk about wisdom. Because when we talk about wisdom, we're not talking about intelligence. Friends, being wise and being smart are not the same thing. How many times have you met someone who was really, really smart, really smart, probably went to some school in Boston, you know, like goodwill hunting smart, like wicked smart, you know, wicked smart, right? Someone who's really, really bright, but lacking wisdom. And think about someone whom you consider to be wise. Why do you think that person is wise? It's not because of that person's education, But that person is wise because of the manner in which they live and the difficulties that they faced that forged in them this wisdom. You know, when you ask people, who is someone in your life that's wise, their response is usually what? Someone who's older, probably from a previous generation, with little to no formal education, especially in the STEM fields. Someone like their grandparents. Someone with a lot of life experience. And if you think about the wise people in your life, there are certain similarities. Number one, they all face deprivation, want. They face some sort of difficulty in life. Number two, they try to live a simple life. 
Number three, their conduct matches their theology. They live out what they believe. And number four, they're generally content. They're content people. If you think about the wise people that are in your life, there are these people who live out what they believe and try to do it in such simple, simple manners. And so a few things. To be wise, according to James and according to Scripture, means that, number one, you have discernment in decision-making. Number two, you have discipline to actually follow through an action. And number three, you have discretion in the manner of the action. So there's discernment in thinking through things. There's discipline in actually acting it out. And number three, there's discretion in how you act it out to not be offensive to others. As my Old Testament professor used to say, wisdom in the Bible is mastery of life. Wisdom is understanding the pattern of this world that God has created and redeemed, hearing the rhythms of redemption in this world and being able to dance according to that rhythm, according to that beat. Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is practical knowledge, living it out. And so we can see why James is concerned with wisdom. So that's wisdom. Number two, then, what are the marks of wisdom? Look with me again in James 3.13. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Notice here the characteristic that uh, James uses to describe wisdom. Of all the descriptions that he could use, what does he use? He says, meekness. He doesn't say insightful or sharp or comprehensive, but he uses the characteristic of meekness. For James, wisdom is meek. You know, meekness is often misunderstood, especially uh, in today's culture. We normally associate meekness with what? With cowardice, with spinelessness, indecisiveness, We think of someone who's meek as being wishy-washy, lacking confidence, being shy, or having a withdrawn personality. No one here wants to become meek because we think of meekness as weakness. But that's not how the Bible views meekness. Meekness is the combination of patience, gentleness, a welcoming spirit, and a submissive spirit to God's will. Someone who's meek doesn't need to be in control. Instead, their attention is focused on learning self-control. They don't have to control the situation, but their attention is on controlling themselves. Meekness, according to Scripture, is about opening your heart up to others. Instead of opening up your mouth in judgment... Meekness is about opening up your heart instead of putting your foot down to crush others. It's about opening your heart to others instead of clenching your fist in anger and rage. Meekness looks weak, but the meek are actually indestructible. You can't phase them. You can't shake them. Their strength is not outward. It's inward and it's upward. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. You know, there are two people in the Bible that are described as meek. The first is Moses. Numbers 12, 3 says that Moses was the most meek person in the entire world. But the second person 
is our Savior, Jesus. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, a call to worship that we read ever, ever so often, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Or in other words, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice here the effects of meekness. If you are meek, what does it mean? It means that you are an inviting person, that people are drawn to you, that you invite and welcome people towards you. And as a meek person, when they come to you, what do they find? They find rest. I think this is an extremely good test for all who think that they are wise. Or it's a great test for those who seek to be wise. Are you inviting as a person? Do people come to you naturally for counsel? And if they do, how do they leave feeling? Do they leave feeling naked, vulnerable? Do you cut them up with your sharp analysis and even sharper judgments? Or do they feel, or do they leave feeling rested? Are you too casual, too flippant with people who come to you? Or do you really listen and look to be yoked with them in their burdens? You see, wisdom, according to James, is about communicating truth in love. How well can we be like Jesus, who was both full of grace and truth? Not just truth, not just grace, but Jesus who was full of grace and truth truth. See, wisdom isn't about how well you can diagnose someone's life and their sins. It's about how well you can direct them to Jesus, the ultimate healer and redeemer. Look at how James further expounds on this in verse 17. He says this, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James calls wisdom pure, first of all, pure in the moral sense, pure in the sense that wisdom seeks righteousness and not convenience. He says wisdom is peaceable, doesn't, that doesn't mean that people who are wise are a step over, they're a doormat, or they're indecisive. No, people who are wise, it means that they are peaceable. In other words, they are not stubborn. Wisdom is peace-seeking. Wisdom prizes relationships over results. It prizes people over projects. Wisdom sees infinite values in souls and doesn't make mountains out of molehills. They prize the relationship. Even though they will lose the argument, they value the relationship so much more that those who are wise will love the other person, that they will seek peace. Wisdom is described as open to reason. In other words, a wise person is someone who listens. They're always mindful of the truth. That while we see the speck in our brother's eyes, we will always fail to see the plank in our own. And so a wise person is always listening and quick to admitting when he or she is wrong. A wise person knows that they are not right all the time, but will admit when they are wrong all the time. 
wisdom bears fruits. It looks foolish, but James tells us wisdom is always fruitful. Wisdom is fair. It's sincere. It treats people, everyone the same. It's impartial. You know, as I was going through this, meditating on this verse, I noticed how much similarities there are between the way in which James describes wisdom and the Beatitudes that we find in Matthew 5. These are just some of the Beatitudes, but look at what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, right, as wisdom is filled with mercy, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know, as James is drawing on wisdom, he's actually pulling from Jesus' teachings in the Beatitudes and describing wisdom in this way, in this blessed manner. Those who are wise are truly blessed. Those who are wise are truly happy. They are content, content people. This is what wisdom looks like. James, if it hasn't been clear, then he gets to the third question of our day. What are the marks of counterfeit wisdom? It's not enough for James to just describe what wisdom looks like. He actually talks about counterfeit wisdom, if it wasn't clear enough. Verses 14 to 16, he says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic even. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You know, as you look at these verses, this earthly wisdom that James talks of, and compare that to this wisdom from above that was just described in verses 13 and 17, what's the main difference? What do you think is the biggest difference between true wisdom from God and counterfeit wisdom from the earth? Well, the biggest difference is this. True wisdom is self-giving. We find it's self-sacrificial. It's elevating of others. It's communal. It thinks about others. It's peaceable. It's loving. It's kind. True wisdom doesn't insist on being right all the time. True wisdom is peaceable. It's reasonable. While... This earthly wisdom we find in verses 14 to 17 is what? It's self-gratifying, self-consuming. There's selfish ambition involved. It's boastful. It's not peaceful, but it creates disorder. You see, this is what the Bible is getting at. You see, true wisdom is actually contagious. If there's wisdom within a single person, then that wisdom, what happens is, like life, it naturally goes out, and it starts to affect other people. It starts to uh, be contagious and be imparted to others. And wisdom is natural. It grows. It becomes organic. But earthly wisdom is what? It's self-centered. It's self-consuming. It's... There's selfish ambition involved. And so, for James, there's this paradox involved with wisdom that the wisest person on this earth that doesn't impart wisdom, the wisest person on this earth who doesn't actually share in wisdom or give wisdom or interact 
with others in wisdom is actually not wise. If you look at Proverbs 3.19, this is what it says. Uh, Proverbs, as it describes wisdom, it says this, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. In other words, wisdom, the Bible tells us that God, through wisdom, created this world. What did He do? He took nothing and made something. He took disorder and He created order. Wisdom brings peace. It brings order. And a person who creates disorder, no matter how smart that person may be, is actually not a wise person. That person may be right all the time. He or she may have the best assessment all the time. They may have the best diagnosis all the time. But they are not wise. A wise person is someone who gives and gives and gives in parts and parts and parts. A wise person is someone who shares. A wise person is someone who creates a wise community. And so, the final question, how is it then we can become wise as individuals and as a church? Well, of, of all the virtues, wisdom is definitely something that needs to first be seen. It needs to first be modeled. We need to see wisdom somewhere else. And that wisdom for us is modeled in Christ. As Colossians 2 tells us, Christ, in Him is found all the hidden wisdom of God. That Christ was for us wisdom. You see, when we hear the biblical definition of wisdom as someone, or hear the biblical wisdom of someone who is wise as someone who is self-giving, someone who shares, someone who is sacrificial, someone who is willing to lay down his or her life, we have to wonder, is it really worth being wise? Should we seek to become wise? And Christ shows us the way. He shows us the way a man who was filled with grace and truth a man who did not compromise on truth, but one who gave his life so that all who believe in him might receive that truth. In Christ, we find this paradox of wisdom of a God who loved the world and gave everything on behalf of it so that we could live. See, in Christ, we find wisdom modeled. In Christ, we find wisdom attained. In Christ, we find wisdom achievable. You see, for us, it might just become, we might just be suspicious. Why should we even be wise? Why should I live in this way? Why should I live in a way where I'm meek and people will take advantage of me? Well, Scripture tells us if you see Christ, if you meet Christ, if you know Christ, then this wisdom it's not just attainable, but it's actually desirable. Some practical ways, then, as to how we can become wise as we see it modeled in Christ. As we see Jesus who was peaceable, loving, pure, kind. Jesus who gave his life for others. Who created a community of wisdom. What do we find? Well, James 1.5 says this. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, for James, wisdom is something that's from above. Wisdom is not something that we can gain for ourselves, that we can work our way to, but wisdom is something from above, and it is given. It is a gift. That's why the wise will always be humble, because he or she knows that it's not from themselves. Wisdom is not something that we can work our way to, but it's something that the Lord graciously gives. And so James tells us, the way in which we become wise is you ask God who gives it to you. I don't know if you ever thought about recording your prayers. Um, You know, I figured if you start recording your prayers, you might become more uh, aware and conscientious of it, and you might, you know, start praying differently. But if you ever record your prayers and think back, how many times have you actually asked God for wisdom? You know, we ask God for strength. We ask God for courage. We ask God uh, for all sorts of things. But when was the last time you actually asked God, God, give me wisdom? Give me wisdom in the midst of my trials. Give me wisdom in the midst of my relationships. Give me wisdom for the people and the places you have called me to be in. See, James tells us wisdom is from above and it is given and is something we must ask for. But then James, again, in a very direct way says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. He says this, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James says this, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. But when you pray for wisdom, do not doubt that God is going to give it to you. Because if you do, you are a double-minded man. In other words, literally, he says you are a double-souled man. You have two souls where you ask God for one thing, but you doubt that he will actually give it to you. I mean, what confidence James gives us to ask God for wisdom. You know, in the situation in life that you are facing right now, whether it's in your studies, whether it's with your family, your relationships, all the things that are going on, would you ask God for wisdom? Would you admit that it's not something that you can do on your own, that it's not something that you can work up or garnish on your own, that you can create organically on your own, but it's something that you need? Would you be humble before him and ask to receive wisdom, that he would give it to you as a gift? And would you receive that gift and impart that unto others? One other way in which we can become wise as a community, Scripture tells us um, in Timothy 3, Paul says that the Holy Scriptures make us wise for salvation. So very simply, according according to the Bible, we become wise by first prayer, secondly through the studying of His Word. As we navel-gaze into his word more and more, as we commit it to memory, as we commit it to study more and more, Scripture tells us we become wise. So church, would you at this hour, would you at this time, humbly come before him acknowledging that we are foolish as a people, as individuals, and would you ask him for wisdom, a wisdom that is pure, a wisdom that is peaceable, a wisdom that is not driven by selfish ambition, a wisdom that is not driven by gain, but a wisdom that is sacrificial, a wisdom that imitates Christ, a wisdom 
that is Christ-like. Would you join me in prayer this time?